The Evolve with Pete Evans podcast is a conversation about my favorite ingredients for a healthy human experience. We take an informed look at topics that include nutritional and emotional well-being as well as expanded consciousness. I love exploring the topics that are not traditionally taught at school and take a deep dive into them with my special guests. I invite you to sit back and come along for the ride with an open mind and heart and please share with your family and friends as these podcasts may just be the seed from which many things will flourish from. Cheers. We've been using Waters Co. water filters for the last 10 years and I wholeheartedly trust my family's health with them. Waters Co., established 1977, have personal and domestic water filters, which turns your ordinary tap water into great tasting, alkaline, ionized mineral water, which removes up to 99.9% of fluoride, heavy metals, chemicals, and bacteria, so you can love your tap water again. The Bio 1000 is the latest edition of the BMP 1000 model and the culmination of over 40 years of experience and research into water filtration by some of the world's leading scientists. Waters Co. was first to market with natural gravity-fed systems, creating alkaline water way back in 1984, and have continued to lead the market in research and development, setting the benchmark for all other brands to follow. Please go to my webpage, PeteEvans.com, to learn more and to receive your special discount from my link on the products page. You're going to love it. Professor Mark Cohen also known as Dr. Mark, is a pioneer of wellness and integrative medicine. He is a registered medical practitioner with degrees in Western medicine, physiology, psychological medicine, and PhDs in Chinese medicine and biomedical engineering. Mark is a founding board member of the Global Wellness Summit, co-founder of the Bathe the World Foundation, and founder of the Extreme Wellness Institute, and co-owner of Maruya Hot Springs in the South Island of New Zealand. As a pioneer of integrative and holistic medicine, Dr. Mark has published over 100 peer-reviewed scientific papers and multiple books on wellness topics and made significant impacts on education, research, clinical practice and policy. In 2002, he became Australia's first professor of complementary medicine and head of the Department of Complementary Medicine at RMIT University, where he oversaw the teachings of Chinese medicine, osteopathy and chiropractic and developed an online Masters of Wellness program. To find out more about Dr. Mark, please visit his website, drmark.co. That's D-R-M-A-R-C dot co. Mark, thank you so much for joining us today. How are you, brother? I'm great. Pleasure to be with you. Hey, um, thank you for accepting the invitation. A very dear friend of ours, Therese Kerr, actually hooked us up last night. I was, I was having a beautiful magnesium bath and I was, I was watching this uh, documentary and all of a sudden the, the message came up from Therese. I was like, oh, hey, Therese, what's going on? And she said, you need to speak with Mark. And if Therese suggests something, I usually go, I, I investigate a bit further and uh, I opened up your bio and I was like, how the fuck have I not heard of Mark before? <laughs> where have you been hiding or where haven't you been hiding? Because I've been you... hiding in academia. <laughs> yeah, I've been around for a while. But yeah, so I've been, I've been moving. I mean, I used to run a master's of nutrition medicine. And, and it seems I surround myself with chefs. I've got half a dozen books of mates of mine who've written cookbooks. So, you know, Janella Purcell and you know, Sam Gowing and 
Yeah. Sandra Dubbs and um, Lauren Burns, who's one of my PhD students. You know, so I've got all these great cookbooks. So, um, yeah, I, I love food. So I'm not a great chef, but I mean, I love surrounding myself with chefs. So, yeah, great to finally meet you. I've, I've heard a lot about you. you know, I've seen, you know, seen you around for many years. Well, apologies for not having you on my radar in the past, but I tell you what, I'm, I'm glad that uh, we've got this connection. You are a professor. Yeah. What does that mean? Oh, well, I'm, I'm a doctor, doctor, doctor professor. So I did a medical degree. So I'm a, I'm a GP. I'm a medical doctor. I did two PhDs, um, one in Chinese medicine, one in electrical computer systems engineering. And then I became a professor in 2002 when I was, uh, professor is like a job title. So I was, I had a really, I've had a really interesting career. So I was running a centre for complementary medicine at Monash University throughout the 1990s. So I was like the alternative doctor in the conventional medical faculty at, at Monash Medical School. And then in 2001, I, end of 2001, I got offered a job at RMIT University to be the head of the Department of Complementary Medicine at RMIT, which didn't have Western medicine, but it had osteopathy, chiropractic, and Chinese medicine. Mm-hmm. So then I, then I became the conventional doctor in the alternative medical school. So I was given this title as professor. So I was a tenured professor, and I was head of a department that taught Chinese medicine, osteopathy, and chiropractic. And during that time, I actually created, a, a, which was my dream, a master's of wellness program. So for 10 years, I ran an ma- online master's degree in wellness. So I was 16 years, I was a professor at RMIT, and at the end of 2018, I decided it was time to leave that corporate gig and had just too much else going on, and um, so I sort of semi-retired. I've still, still got six PhD students, so I'm, and, I've, and one of them is at University of Western Sydney, and I've got you know, students who are doing work on herbal medicine, health retreats, hot springs, sauna bathing elite athletic performance, Lauren Burns, who's an Olympic gold medalist. She's one of my students. So we're we're studying the lifestyles of elite athletic performers and Olympic gold medalists and doing work on Tulsi tea and herbal medicine. So yeah, I spent 16 years as a professor and pretty much learning and and researching wellness. So I've done a lot of yoga research, probably the most, I'm the most published yoga researcher in the Southern Hemisphere. I've done a lot of herbal medicine research, a lot of nutritional medicine research on organic food written massive textbooks on herbs and supplements and the spa industry. So I've done all the, all the fun stuff, but all, all the stuff that doesn't have any money behind it. So all the research, and I've done big clinical trials in acupuncture. I did like the biggest study in the world in acupuncture in the emergency departments. So yeah, all, all the stuff that is about lifestyle. So looking at what you do at a health retreat, so yoga, organic food, detoxification programs, you know, I'm, I'm trying to learn for myself, how can I be well? So I was really interested to learn as much as I can about wellness. And so I spent 38 years at university. Wow. And, and you've published over 100 papers. What does that mean as well, just for the layperson to understand what that means? Well, so there's a saying in academia, publish or perish. So 100 academic papers means I've contributed to, so I've been a, a co-author, the primary author or the, you know, the lead author or one, one of the authors on a hundred papers that have gone through that scientific peer review process and a you know index on PubMed and all the bibliographical databases. So I, actually, I haven't actually written um, like the, the consumer book. I mean, I've written textbooks, I've written all these scientific peer reviewed papers and I've written children's books. I've got an amazing um, illustrated children's books I've written, but I haven't come out with the, the, the consumer Facebook yet. So yeah, but I, I've done original research 
And some of that systematic reviews, I've done clinical trials, I've done epidemiological studies and global surveys, I've done laboratory research, I've done yeah, randomised in the double-blind randomised placebo-controlled trials. I've done big multi-centred trials in Western hospitals. So I'm sort of the bridge between Eastern medicine and Western medicine. That's where I've spent my career, walking that tightrope between alternative medicine and conventional medicine or science and spirituality. And, and I, I love that. I love being the bridge. I love connecting different disciplines and being on the edge of the discipline because I think that's where the interesting stuff happens, on the edge, and learning for myself. So... I mean, I've been really lucky. I've been on the board of the Global Wellness Summit for the last 14 years or since it started. Every year I'd be going to you know, amazing wellness conferences and meeting up with the, you know, the, the global leaders in the wellness industry. So I've done a lot of work with luxury hotels. I've done a lot, lot of work with you know, the spa and hot spring industry. Mm-hmm. I became a shareholder in, in the most amazing hot spring in the world, I believe, in the Southern Alps in New Zealand. Maru Hot Springs, which is this incredible pristine property that runs on hydroelectric, runs on pure water. It's mountain water comes down the hill, it drives the hydro station there and natural hot water coming out of the ground. And so I'm involved with that. I've been working with Peninsula Hot Springs since before they opened down in Melbourne. One of my best friends runs Peninsula Hot Springs. And, and I created a group called the Global Thermal Think Tank, which is a group of hot spring owners and operators. Every year we meet somewhere in the world and talk about hot spring research, hot spring operations, promoting bathing and studying bathing. Um, one of my PhD students is um, Joy Hussain. She's a medical doctor in Brisbane. We've just done a clinical trial on sauna bathing with the Queensland Academy of Sport. So, yeah, interested in sauna, in sauna for hot springs. And you know, I love bathing. So, you know, you said you're in the bath, you know, watching a documentary. I do the same thing. I, I get my you know, computer put on a chair and lie in the bath watching, a, watching documentaries. Um, I, I love water. And thinking about, you know, I've been teaching integrative medicine and wellness and medicine from a Western perspective to alternative practitioners, the osteochiral Chinese medicine practitioners. But I thought for me to make the biggest contribution in the world, what, what is the best, as a, as a medical doctor, what is the most significant contribution I can make to people's health? And, and it's always come back to upgrading their water. So um, I've, I've come up with a recipe for wellness. I, I've, over the years, I've integrated all this Chinese medical knowledge, my Western medical knowledge, and trying to summarise it. And it ends up coming out in poetry. So I've written, I've got these poems that sort of summarise a whole lot of med- medical knowledge. And one, and one is just the recipe for wellness. Being a chef, you know, you follow recipes. So you know, the recipe for wellness was, you know, came to me as a, a poem, which is, um, you know, bathe in beautiful water, prepare delicious food, make the most of every breath, dance through every mood. Embrace the earth beneath your feet and sunshine from above. Share your gifts with all the world. Fill your life with love. So you know, that's super, super, thank you. So it's super simple. <laughs> beautiful, brother. Oh, fuck. So, yeah, so it's super, super simple, but it starts with bathe, with bathe in beautiful water. A few years ago, I was super fortunate. I was um, actually, I met Therese in, in just straight after. I went to um, Bulgaria and I spoke at the International Conference on the Physics, Chemistry and Biology of Water which is a conference that Gerald Pollack runs each year. And I got to speak about water, water, wellness and wealth and the inner well of being. But I got to meet all the incredible water scientists. And straight after that, I, I did a, a, a hot spring tour of Europe where I actually met Therese Kerr in Hungary and we went around to these hot springs. I was travelling with my mum. And then we had the Global Thermal Think Tank, which is a whole group of hot spring researchers in Germany. Then we had the Global Wellness Summit in Austria. Then I went to Czech Republic and all around Europe visiting hot springs and actually taking DNA samples from the water. And we were actually measuring the microbiome of the, of the what I call the bathing biome, the, the, 
microbiology of the water in hot springs because it's, it's so fascinating. But at that water conference, I learned that we're, you know, we're two-thirds water by volume or by mass, but we're 99% water if we count our molecules. So you know, water is the infrastructure of our body. Now, water is tiny compared to collagen or, or nucleic acids or proteins. So for every other you know, massive protein in your body, it's surrounded by water. You've got 99 water molecules. So we're 99% of our molecules are water, yet water is its not what's studied in biochemistry. We study the 1%. We study the, the proteins and the nucleic acids. So, yeah, water is so powerful, and I've you know, tried to bring in water systems to the world, what I call beautiful water, which is water that's not just filtered. It's filtered, it's structured. It's balanced in terms of pH and minerals. It's blessed with positive intention and it's given away for free. Mm, I love it, brother. I'm, I'm, I'm going to dive in, in part of the pun into this uh, beautiful pool that you're talking about. But it is, it's interesting. I've been talking about health and nutrition now for about oh, close to 10 years. And so for some reason, I get to have a platform for this through some of the choices that I've made in my life, whether it be learning how to cook and then choosing a TV uh, role and, you know, looking back at all the sort of jigsaw pieces or joining the dots to where I, I, I am now, I have a very interesting platform. And when you talked about being a bridge before, that's, that's sort of my mantra, even though a lot of people don't probably realize or understand it, but bridge between alternative or natural and mainstream and conventional seems to be, and I connect people or concepts or ideas. I understand my strengths. I also know what some of my weaknesses are as well. And I, I have quite a few <laughs> that are still still to be uh, pondered and contemplated and worked oh, on. We're, we're all works in progress, you know. <laughs> but one of the things that has resonated with me the most, and when I have done stage talks to uh, people that have come along to, to hear us speak with, with friends of ours, including Therese, is that I usually finish the talk by saying, if there's nothing else that you take from today or tonight's talk or information that I'm sharing, please get the best possible water for you and your family. If that can be the only thing that you do or the first step for your health, That'll be the most important. And, and I could see people's eyes glaze over and just question, how the fuck can water be? What's the difference between great water and, and just the stuff that we get out of the tap? And I'm sitting at a house here at the moment in Sydney. And we spent, and, and to show you how passionate I am about water, I get these uh, water experts to come into this house to create a complete system for me. So last night's magnesium bath is completely no chlorine, no fluoride. Anything that comes out of the shower faucet is no chlorine, fluoride. Reverse osmosis, which, which has its pros and cons, but then it's we structure it. We put it through a vortex machine as well. Then we remineralize it. I've got uh, a friend that makes organite uh, sort of sacred geometry platforms or, or bases so that I put the water on that that's in, in a crystal amethyst or different types of crystal vase and and we're grateful and we bless it and I've probably lost probably 99% of the people that are listening to this thing. <laughs> <laughs> I knew it was crazy <laughs> but that 
I can't tell you every single day, and, and my wife and I live on a farm, we have rainwater, which we then filter, then we restructure, then we remineralize, and then we bless it as well. That's it. That's... And every day when I go to drink the first glass of water or I pour it for my kids or I see my wife getting her water and, and right now I'm having a beautiful cup of tea with that water, it's just... I know that I'm doing something. It, uh, I call it self-love. It's, it's an act of self-appreciation. And I don't think that can ever be underestimated. And this is an extreme level, what we've done in this house. Like, it, it costs money. I, 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 I can't... Do whole house reverse osmosis. You must have a tank to store it. Yeah, we, do. Yeah, yeah. we do. We and, do. And, and there's positives and negatives with that. Luckily, we're on a um, solar system here, so it doesn't cost us anything it's a it's one of those tesla power walls but i just thought it was such a big investment for my family and my and myself for long-term sustainable health so if we averaged it out over 10 20 years it would be a couple of cents a day yeah and and what a great investment i know you've got a a bomb to share with us later about uh coronavirus so to speak or maybe the holy grail which which we will get into but let's just start with water and what do you tell your students about water and why is it so, so, such a powerful thing that shouldn't be underestimated? Water is life, literally. There's 72 scientific anomalies that we just do not understand about water. So, so within that lack of understanding, there's magic. So, you know, water really, it's the infrastructure for our bodies. I mean, 99% of our bodies are, is water. And it's, it, water holds consciousness. So I've met these great researchers who um, have studied the consciousness. You know, water holds memory. Water holds structure. So it is who we are. You know, when you study evolution and the evolution of life, it's gone through these waves. So that, and you know, uh, evolutionary um, transformations happen in you know, a wave of five rhythms, you know, going through flowing, staccato, chaos, lyrical, and stillness. And when water first came to Earth, it was the meeting of the hottest water in the solar system that met the coldest water in the solar system. So we had the, the hottest water in the solar system was four and a half billion years ago on the molten earth. You know, the, the ingredients for water were inside the molten earth. But then there were these ice comets, ice crystals out past Neptune that was the coldest water in the solar system. And then in the four and a half billion years ago, there was a late heavy bombardment when all these outer comets and invaded the inner solar system and that pounded the earth with these ice crystals so this ice water you know ice met the molten lava and that was the the flowing state when it when it met it was bound by gravity that's the staccato phase when the whole earth held that water gravity sort of stopped going away and the earth's magnetic field protected it from the cosmic rays of the sun so we can keep the water on earth and then that water turned into steam like chaos and created the atmosphere of the earth, a vapour atmosphere. Eventually that cooled down to create rain, which is lyrical, which is sort of the creative, made it the terrain of the earth, so it structured the mountains and, and sank into the oceans. That was the stillness phase. And that's when we had you know, a, a wet, liquid earth four and a half billion years ago. And then in that ocean phase, the hottest water on earth met the coldest water on earth. And that's still happening today, and that happens at the very bottom of the oceans. So the hottest water on Earth happens at hydrothermal vents where hot springs are coming out at the bottom of the ocean. And at that level, water can be like 200 or 300 or even more degrees centigrade and still liquid. 
because it's under so much pressure. And, it, and because it's coming through the earth, through these hot springs, it's laden with minerals. It's dissolved all the, you know, the earth minerals. But then the coldest water on earth sinks from the bottom of the ocean because cold water is really dense. So this cold water sinks to the very bottom of the ocean where it's, it carries oxygen and, and salt, and it meets this hot water. And, and that's where this incredible range of organic chemistry happens because you've got all this hot water meeting the cold water. You've got this incredible range of temperatures and pressures and solutes, and that's where life formed. And then the, the evolution of life went through a wave of evolution through these five phases, which went through the gel phase, which is like primordial soup, where the water became structured. And then you had the cell phase where that primordial soup got bound by a lipid membrane. And that was prokaryote cells, basic simple cells. And then those cells got engulfed by each other and made eukaryotic cells. So they became organelles. And then those cells with organelles, the, the, the eukaryotic cells, you know, engulfed the prokaryotic cells. And then they joined together and engulfed each other to make multicellular organisms. We've had sexual cells. We had sexual reproduction. We had this explosion of life in the Cambrian explosion 600 million years ago. And then we had, they got engulfed by shells. So we went from gels, cells, organelles, sexual cells, and shells. That's the evolution of vertebrates. And then water conquered the world, like because that's water. The still water was still in the side. So you had the you know the gel phase is still inside the cells. Each level engulfed the next. And then in the evolution of vertebrate life, you, I can summarize in five words: went from scales to skin to feather to fur to fashion. <laughs> So you had, you know, fish in the ocean covered by scales and they went onto land and covered by skin. You had amphibians and reptiles and then they got went to the air and covered by feathers. And then we had ma uh, mammals which were covered by fur and they went everywhere because mammals go in the air and in the water and on the land. And then we had humans which we have fashion. We make clothes and cars and heated aeroplanes and stuff. So we go everywhere on earth. So that was the evolution of vertebrate life. And then, you know, humans have gone through a whole evolution. So we're just the evolved water. And at each level, we've encompassed the previous level. And what we're ha what's happening right now on planet Earth is that we're going through a whole other evolutionary phase where humanity is being engulfed by technology. Mm. So that, that's, you know, what we're going through now isn't just, a, you know, a virus and a, and a bit of a global disruption. We're going through a major evolutionary shift as significant as when life went onto land or, you know, the start of the first cell because, you know, all of life on Earth, and not just human life, but all life on Earth is about to be engulfed by technology and this symbiosis or whatever whatever's going to emerge But after we come out of this sort of mush phase. We're in sort of this metamorphosis phase now on Earth where all, all the structures that we, we built coming to this phase are breaking down. And I, and I liken that to um, a booster rocket where you've got, you know, all these industries that, that are really toxic and, and polluting and, and actually anti-life. So you've got the agribusiness industry and the oil industry and the banking industry and the media industry and the pharmaceutical industry, which all produce really quite toxic products. So I've calculated it's about two-thirds of the global GDP we spend on products that kill us. Mm. So we put, you know, chlorine in our water and fluoride in our water and pesticides and GMOs and nuclear radiation and, you know, it goes on and on, all the toxic products but we've needed that to get to the level of evolution where we are now and it's like the booster rocket on a, um, a rocket ship where the booster rocket it's smelly it's noisy it leaves this toxic plume of pollution but then you get to a level where you have to let it go 
and the command module continues off and the booster rocket falls and crashes and burns and goes back to Earth. So these industries are like the booster rocket and we're in the process of trying to let them go. And you can't blame the booster rocket for trying to grab onto the command module and trying to drag it back down to Earth, you know, uh, and destroy it. But it's not. You know, the command module is, is human consciousness and we're, we're about to go to the next level of evolution and we're going to transform these industries and create a whole new way of being in the world. So that's, you know, so that's you know, it's a really big picture of what's happening. And but it's a way of realizing, you know, there's no conspiracy people out there trying to get us. It's this has just been the necessary evolution. We've needed industry. We've needed even that negativity, that anti-life sort of force for us to boost off and then keep going. So that the water is who we are. It's we, water connects all life on Earth. The water in you and the water in me is the same. When, you know, when we say namaste, you know, I honour the, the place in you where, where pure water resides. That pure water is in all of us. It's the same pure water. And it connects all life. And, you know, when you enhance your water, when you up, upgrade the infrastructure of your body, of your consciousness, it's one of the most powerful things you can do. And I'm a big fan of permaculture. And Bill Mollison would say that when you get the basic things right, everything else goes right by itself. So when you get water right, and you know that if you're on a farm, you know, you, you're, you need to get the irrigation right and the swales and the water control, then, then it's easy to plant. If, if you've got water just running off, you, you haven't got water management, then you're not going to grow things. So water is who we are. It holds our consciousness. It's the infrastructure for our body. And at the moment, we've really disrespected ourselves by disrespecting our water. And we're in this crazy situation where the authorities say we're going we're gonna to put poison in your water to make you healthy. And that's, that's the attitude of, of Western medicine, you know. We're, we're going to poison you to make you healthy. So, you know, they put chlorine. I mean, the reason why they put chlorine in water is because it's such a potent poison. You know, 0.2 to 0.6 parts per million, it'll kill bacteria when it comes out of your tap. Well, not your tap, but um, <laughs> most people's taps. So we're in this crazy situation where we're drinking poison every day and we're bathing in poison every day and not realising the damage because we've created this war on life. So we've just discovered, you know, the last 10 years, the microbiome in our gut, and we're just discovering now, we still haven't fully realised implications of it, about the virome or the, the viruses that are inside us, on us, around us, in our air. And you know, this is life. And for us to try and wage war on the bacteria in our bodies or the, the viruses are in us and around us is very misguided at best and, and anti-life and destructive at worst. I mean, I can keep talking about water forever, but it, when you, when you realise that the bacteria in our bodies are so important for our health, why would you commit war on your body every day by exposing it to chlorine? And, and when you look at the research, it's actually you get more exposure to chlorine and a more impact on your microbiome through bathing than you do from drinking. And, and that's because you bathe in a lot more water than you drink. The bacteria on your skin is super important. So when I, when I studied medicine 30 years ago or more, we, we learned that the body had a surface area of about 1.8 square metres. So, you know, if you lay your skin out, it's about 1.8 square metres. But about last year, they actually recalculated that and said, no, look, in the gut, we know the gut has a big surface area because all the villi, all the little, you know, little villi that increase the surface area of the gut, and that's where the bacteria live and that's where our microbiome lives. Well, in your skin, there's these reverse villi. Every time you have a hair follicle or a sweat, sweat gland, the skin dips down and goes back up. And if you count that 
that extra surface of skin, your skin has a, a surface area 30 square metres. Wow. So it's a massive area for absorbing chemicals. And, and in those ducts, that's where the oils are secreted that protect your skin from the sun, that stop your skin from ageing. That's where the bacteria live that actually help your immune system detect pathogens and protect you from pathogens. So your skin is so important. So the water that you put on your skin is really important for how your skin looks, the ageing. If you, you're putting chlorine on your skin, you're oxidising those oils, those precious oils that protect your skin from the sun and from, from drying out. And then if you bathe in, in chlorinated water, generally you bathe in warm water. And once it's over about 25 degrees, chlorine, chloramines, trihalomethanes, they, they evaporate and they go into the air. And then you breathe them in and they absorb through your skin directly. So when you drink chlorinated water, you're drinking these toxic compounds, but your liver filters them out. So they actually don't appear in your blood. But when you breathe these con toxic compounds, when you're bathing in a bath or in a shower, and this, this research has been done, they've measured it, you get all these toxic compounds appearing in your blood straight away. Because when they go through your lungs and through your skin, it bypasses the liver and gets absorbed directly into your blood. So you know, five minutes after a hot shower or a hot bath of breathing these fumes, you can detect chloro in a chloroform, trihalomethanes, in your blood directly. Mm, I've, I've never enjoyed going to Victoria and staying in a hotel and having a shower, I'll tell you that. And, and, and the same thing in Perth because I used to travel quite a lot for my job and I'd be in these hotels and I'd turn on the, the tap. Oh, fuck. And you, you, you've got the choice smell or maybe just a little wash but and I've, I've, I'm, I'm a lover of water it's, it's really interesting I've had uh, some interesting conversations with different energy or spiritual healers and, and some of the work that I've done remotely is I'm in a bath while people are doing their Reiki healing or energy healing from different parts of the world and it's nothing sexual here it's just I'm, I'm just in that water and I have a love for the ocean and it's really interesting because people have said to me, they go, yeah, water is your place for regeneration and calming. Some people are more earthbound and some people are more airbound and some people are more, whatever it may be. But for me, water is my, I'm, I'm just compelled to go into it. So when I've been traveling and, and I'm in a hotel or something I'm like, like I really, I really need the water, but at the same time, so you have the cold shower, but when you're in Melbourne, it's not really the sort of thing you, you want to be yeah. doing too much. I was talking about cold showers in a minute because I did a lot of work with Wim Hof doing mm. hot and cold. But, but I'll tell you a trick for because I do a lot of travelling as well. So if you're in a hotel and, and you know, in Perth, the water's so chlorinated. So what you do is you fill up the bath in the hotel room and you fill it up hotter than you can bear and you just wait 40 minutes and you put the fan on and then all the chlorine will outgas after, you know, 20, 30, 40 minutes. And then you go into the bath after that. And you, I mean, you need the fan on because otherwise you're going to out, you know, breathe all the fumes in. So you just put the hot, hot bath on, leave it for half an hour, and then come back to it. And most of the chlorine will evaporate and you'll have a relatively chlorine free bath when you're traveling. There we go. Solutions, brother. I love it. I love oh, yeah, it. Yeah, and that's what I, I mean. I love water too, but I, I'm, I'm into the like you know, simple, practical solutions. What, what are the things we can actually do that are easy, cheap? And there are so many, there's so many activities. That almost for free. Yeah. That's what I've spent my whole career on, researching these things you can do at almost no cost that, that are available to everybody that just make a world of difference. So, yeah, and bathing is one of them. And listening to you talk about the skin like you just were with our, micro, with our bacteria that we have in there, I mean, I've been ridiculed 
to the point of, uh, with, some people might say bullying or reputation, assassination, and whatever it is, we're still here and we're breathing. And um, interesting too, some of the people that have called me out are, are no longer even here on the planet. I wish we could have helped them along on their journeys instead of being so dogmatically against what you and I and others in this world share with an open mind instead of having blinkers on. But over the years, I've, I've questioned, well, it's not even a fucking question. It's just like, hey, if you're going to put sunscreen on yourself or your kids, have a read of the ingredients, look at the potential side effects, look at what those ingredients are. Don't just trust blindly that because it's sold at the cancer council fucking shop or in the supermarket or the chemist that and it's got a cancer council tick on it or whatever it is that it's that it's good for you because i've looked at that and i from my understanding it's it, it can be cancer causing if you put that onto your body and then you go and expose yourself to the most beautiful medicine in the world which is the sun that it's free and people are, are lathering it on to their children or babies. It's like, fuck, like, what are you doing? Well, Did- we're, we're, we're so disconnected from who we are, from, from the, the life that's in us, on us, and around us. And, and the light. Yeah, and the light. Well, that's part of the recipe for wellness, you know, embrace the sunshine from above. It's, it's, it's sunshine is such a powerful you know, healing force. It's you know, a lightning force. What do those chemicals do? I mean, without putting you on the spot here, because I don't want to tarnish your reputation, but let's hypothetically speaking, we take that sunscreen that has these chemicals in it. The, I mean, there's the sunscreen itself that's blocking. I mean, so there's the, the chemicals and the excipients. And I don't know that sunscreen's ever been shown to reduce mortality from skin cancer. It hasn't, from my understanding. Yeah, so... I mean, we need the sun. We, we need the sun to make vitamin D. And vitamin D is coming up as one of the most important things for our immunity. And, you know, the countries with high vitamin D level and people with high vitamin D have much better tolerance and immunity against respiratory infections. So you're actually de- depriving yourself from that vitamin D. But, but also you're, um, you're losing touch with that connection with the sun. So th- there's a lot of the treatments that I talk about where, you can't prescribe it because it's not a specific dose, but you have to feel it. And when you go out into the sun, like it's beautiful. Sun baking's amazing, but it gets to a point where you know you've had enough mm-hmm. and then you have to go in. So sunscreen lets you go past that point and, you know, that it's sort of, so you're losing touch with that feeling, but that, that connection you have with your own body. And then if you're using sunscreen after you've, bathed in chlorinated water so you've stripped away the, the natural oils that protect you and you've affected you've shifted the, the bacterial population towards more pathogenic more um, bacteria because of the effect on the microbiome of your skin just by bathing in basically but disinfectant you know you, you've thrown out your whole skin balance for example they're also shown for, similar with using hand wash you know a hand sanitizer that when you use hand sanitizer and you touch BPA um, receipts, that you absorb it much, much more for your skin, <laughs> multiple <laughs> times more. So it's actually, uh. we have this incredible natural barrier that's evolved through this four and a half billion years of evolution, not just the evolution of mammals, but we still have the 
prokaryotes and the eukaryotes that I talked about that from four and a half billion years of evolution, it's all still within us. And to think that we can then change that by using these sort of industrial chemicals to sort of block something out or, or to alter it or to poison the, the bad bacteria and keep the good ones, it's just, it's misguided. I, we, we, we just, we have to wake up. We, we, I've just developed a whole course I call Waking Up to Wellness, which, which goes for all these principles of how to embrace life and the life force. So I think, um, I think a lot of people are scared of living in this. And I don't mean that in a, in a derogatory way or a condescending way. It's just, I said this the other day, I said, how can we be the only species on the planet that doesn't know what to eat for long-term sustainable health? Like in, in intuitively, instinctively that, that we can't even work that out. And then we're trusting other people to look after us, such as the government through this pandemic or whatever we want to call it. And I, had, I, I don't really venture out into the real world too often at the moment, but I did two days ago. I was in Sydney and I needed to do something with this computer because I was running out of storage. So I, t- I went down to the Apple store and when I was outside, all the Apple employees had masks on and gloves. And I, I said, oh, I'm just going to go in there and speak to one of the, the specialists. And they said, okay, well, you need to fill out this form and then put on this mask and use the sand hand sanitizer. I said, I refuse to do that. I said, that's not how I, how I roll. And they said, well, you can't come in. I said, well, you've lost a customer. I, I, I will not do that because that doesn't do anything. It, it actually causes probably more harm to put that sanitizer onto your hand. And I'm not willing to do that because it's not law. it's just some fucking thing that you've made up or somebody else has made up and you think you're doing the right thing. But in actual fact, I believe you're causing harm to people. Uh, And that's just my my opinion, but I'm sure the people might be able to back that up. So we're living in this very interesting space at the moment and the information that is coming to us, I, I can't see how hand sanitizer wearing a mask is beneficial for long-term sustainable health for myself or for others and i'm, I'm not going to put you on the spot here because unless you want to be put on the spot <laughs> well, look, I, I mean, i'm always on the spot I'm, I, yeah, I love being but from a from a g from a gp's point of view and also a professor's point of view and what you've learned well i'm a scientist so and i'm a medical doctor i'm a scientist you know i've done two PhDs. i've done a lot of research so i like looking at data and what's the evidence that we have and what's the best quality evidence so if you look at the best quality evidence we have for masks, there's at least 10 randomised controlled trials for masks, and they all say exactly the same thing, and that's that masks don't work. Masks don't stop viral infections, they don't stop the spread, and they don't stop you getting it, they don't stop you spreading it. And that's all the, the mechanistic studies, which aren't involving humans, they're not controlled trials, show they might drop, stop some drop droplets, but they've done good research on masks about spreading you know, influenza and spreading viral infections, and all the good research says they don't work. So to be told and to be mandated that you have to do this, I think is, it's not scientific. It's not based on, you know, just like social distancing, it's not, there's no good science to say that works or helps. And in fact, you know, I've become really concerned about, if you're not concerned and overwhelmed at the moment, you're not in touch with what's going on, I think. But some of the advice that we're being given, and, and not just the advice, but the, the censorship that's going on and the discussions that can be had or can't be had about what's going on, is really concerning because you know, I mentioned before we're, we're in this big phase of evolution where we're merging with you know technology and technology is about to control all of us. 
But at the moment, that technology is being controlled by a very, very small number of people that control all our, you know, the media, the pharmaceuticals, our food, our energy, our money. And the advice that's been given is not based on being healthy or, or maintaining, you know, your good immune system. And that's a worry. And yeah, I've, I've take issue with a lot of the general public health advice. And, you know, and I'm, you know, because I've done all this research on bathing, I, you know, wrote a textbook on the spa industry and I've done research on saunering. I know the benefits of bathing and of heat and the, the recommendations that are coming out. You know, we want to drop some bombs here, but, but you know, there, there's a lot of misinformation coming out from the authorities that are actually damaging people and convincing people to do things that are harmful. And that, that for me is a worry. And that's, you know, I'm really happy to you know, talk to you and, and get messages out there that are really positive. I think we've warmed everyone up now. I think when we said we're going to drop some, some bombs on people, I'm, I'm give, going to give you the opportunity now and, and an invitation for you to, to share what you have discovered because reading your paper about this, the same information had come to me early on in when this virus appeared and it seemed to be a pretty simple formula as to what we can do and maybe that's maybe that's a little bit naive of me or or simplistic from (laughs) from from what I understand but I think life can be very simple and as you said the recipe for wellness and the recipe for health or the recipe for life it doesn't need to be complicated well, I shared my poem. That's pretty simple, you know, but it starts with bathing beautiful water. So let, let's, let's talk about your research now and, and what you believe needs to be heard on a large scale. My family and I have been using beautiful, high-quality essential oils for the last 20 years to live healthily every single day. Now, if you're passionate about health and are ready to step into leadership, I want to invite you to partner with my team and I to build a beautifully successful doTERRA business. Register at PeteHLC.com backslash Pete. That's PeteHLC, which stands for the Healthy Living Collective, dot com backslash Pete. Well, I'm similar. When this pandemic first came out, we all thought this was, you know, going to have a you know, really high death rate. And, you know, we thought, okay, is this really, you know, something that's going to be a worry? I was talking about the use of heat to boost immunity. And I was really concerned where the authorities sort of came out and and discarded that because, you know, this treatment, and I talk about, you know, a treatment that no one's really talking about and it's actually been suppressed by the health authorities and mainstream media. So there's actually a treatment that that costs almost nothing and most people already have have it available in their own home and it can be used at home without medical prescription or medical supervision and and it's really safe just... Based on, based on some common sense safety precautions. And the treatment not, doesn't just prevent COVID-19, it actually can treat COVID-19, but it also prevents and treats a whole range of other chronic diseases, so cardiovascular disease, um, Alzheimer's disease, and it actually has been shown in epidemiological studies to reduce all-cause mortality. And this treatment is based on 600 million years of evolution. And so I'm talking about heat and, and the use of heat and... and hot and cold or hot water. If you look at evolution, all insects, reptiles, birds and mammals and fish raise their body temperature when they have an infection. So, you know, fish and insects and birds do it through their behaviour. They'll go and go in a hot place and just let themselves heat up. Mammals, we can generate fever. 
And so all mammals use fever when they have an infection. And the use of heat by humans has been used ever since there were humans, ever since we had fire, ever since, you know, people went into hot springs. We've used heat for treatment, for sacred ceremonies. That the use of heat is backed by historical evidence, epidemiological evidence, anecdotal evidence, there's clinical trial evidence, there's randomised control trial evidence for using heat to treat viral infections, specifically viral respiratory infections. So that's, that's you know, there's really good research evidence for that. And that's just not for its evidence for its use, but it's also for its safety. And it's been used by cultures all over the world to treat viruses, enhance wellbeing. And it's, heat is it's the most basic disinfectant used by the medical industry. We use autoclaves. We actually use, we heat up vaccines to kill the viruses in them using heat. And, you know, knowing that, okay, you know, you, you want to boost your immunity, just <clears throat> raise your body temperature. And you go into a sauna, you go into a hot bath, you raise your body temperature, your whole immune system becomes activated. So at the start of this pandemic, when, when I heard that the, the authorities were saying, no, you can't raise your body temperature, heat doesn't work. And there are documented places where the WHO and the CDC are blatantly lying. So on the WHO website right now, it says you cannot raise your body temperature in a hot bath or shower. And you know, there's quotes by some I don't know, academics, well, I don't know where they're getting from, saying, oh, yeah, your body temperature doesn't raise unless you're sick. And that's just blatantly not true. You know, I've done all this research and there's every bit of research, if you look at um, when they've studied saunering or hot bathing, they measure people's body temperature and it goes up by one, two, even three degrees with a hot bath or a sauna. And when, that, when your body temperature goes up, your immune system becomes hyperactive. And that's what happens with a fever. But... It takes a lot of energy to, to make a fever. So what we can do is we can outsource that energy to the hot water system or to your sauna. And you can you know, literally raise your body temperature and give your whole immune system a boost, plus your cardiovascular system, plus your psychology, because bathing is so relaxing and so good for you on, on so many levels. So but just, if you're just talking about immunity, the immune cells when you have a fever or when you raise your body temperature artificially become more fluid and active so they can migrate to the to the size where you need them they can grab antigens better they can present those antigens to the antigen presenting cells you can make more antibodies and, and so your whole immune system gets a boost just by raising your body temperature and and that's you know basic information and but when I saw you know WHO is saying no you can't raise your body temperature heat doesn't work you know no point being in the sauna I got really frustrated and I thought, okay, this is, this is bullshit. So I actually wrote a scientific paper on it and I, and I reviewed all the science. And that was just recently published. Um, it's called Turning Up the Heat on COVID-19. Heat is a therapeutic intervention. So that's open access now. It's just gone through full peer review. So if people want us to critique it, they can critique it openly. It's on a, published in a, in a, on a forum where it's gone through full peer review, but the peer, the peer review comments are there. And my reviews are there and people can comment and if they want to tear it apart, they can. But it's, it's based on, as I say, 600 million years of evolution and all these randomised control trial evidence and anecdotal evidence that heat is one of the most basic things we can do to, to boost our immune system. And it's free. It's essentially free. You can do it at home. Sorry, go on. What I'm, what I'm fascinated with, and, and first off, thank you. <laughs> thank, you for, thank you for being you. Thank you for publishing that, turning up the heat. And obviously, you, you've got to cop some heat for that yourself, possibly. Or it could be the turning point. You know, who, who knows who else is out there in the medical or research world or even a politician that 
may come across that, that is looking for answers, that is frustrated, that is at the end of their sort of tether. And, and what you've just done may be or may cause a ripple effect that we haven't seen yet. So well, I hope so. And I'm really frustrated at the moment because the authorities have actually tried to shut it down. I mean, pretty much most of the public saunas in the world right now are closed. And in a sauna, like a traditional Finnish sauna, you know, it's 70, 80, 90, even 100, 110 degrees centigrade. And coronaviruses will melt at 55 degrees. There's no way you can get a, a coronavirus transmission in a sauna, yet they've shut down all the saunas in the world. Interesting. I've, uh, yeah, it's disgusting. We have infrared saunas at, at our properties too. Again, you know, it's not something that it, it is expensive to get one, but, you know, again, long term, if it lasts 10, 20 years, it comes out as a couple of cents a day or whatever it may be. And I think it's, it, it's very beneficial. And actually, the last couple of weeks, I've had a, I tore my hamstring off my buttocks, basically my hip bone or from a surfing accident. And I've been using a biomat, which is, Basically, uh, amethyst crystals, yeah, yeah. amethyst crystals, but apart and black tourmaline, tourmaline in that as well. And anyone that loves woo woo and crystals and things like that, I am one of these people. Whether you believe it or not, it doesn't matter. But the benefits of it is that it gets super, super hot. It's been a really interesting experiment for me because every night I'm sleeping on it and I know I'm meant to possibly be sleeping on it in a cool environment, but with this leg, what I'm doing with it is, is experimenting to see how quickly I can heal as well by using the heat and the amethyst and the use of the saunas and, and cold showers and things. And I'm going to ask you a question here in a second. Sure. Because we are about to open up a, a a health clinic, so to speak, or a wellness clinic in Byron Bay. And in that, we've got red light therapy from mitochondria. We have a cryotherapy machine for really cold immersion, basically, and hyperbaric oxygen chambers. But when you're talking about heating us up mm -hmm. in the sauna or in the bath or however we do it, biomat, such a thing, at the same time, there seems to be a paradox or the same thing at the other end of the spectrum where having a cold chair, being in cryotherapy, being in a cold river, exposing ourselves to the elements when it's cold, does it have the equal benefits? Does it, does it help with viruses or does it activate something different in us? And is that why the cold and the hot work so well together? Or how do you know which one to use when? It's great to use both and they're complementary. And there are, there are some common pathways. So for example, heat shock proteins are these proteins, they're called chaperone proteins that help other proteins in your body stop misfolding. And they get released when you're hot, but also in when you're really cold. So in the heat shock proteins, when you're exposed to cold or hot, they get released and they're protective. But traditionally, for example, the, the sauna culture, which is mainly from, I mean, sauna is a Finnish word. I think it's the only Finnish word in English language. And, I mean, they, they, they've got two million saunas, you know, private saunas in use in Finland. But when they go to the sauna, they don't just go to the sauna, they, they intersperse the time in the sauna with going out and, in a snow drift, in a cold river, or in, in a lake, and they do hot and cold. And that has you know, incredible benefits for your psychology, but for your, your vascular system. So we've got about 100,000 kilometres of blood vessels in our body. And those blood vessels are lined by smooth muscle that, you, that aren't under your voluntary control. And it used to be vascular disease was the biggest killer in, in the modern world. I mean, cancer's now taken over. 
But vascular disease and heart attack and stroke is still one of the biggest killers. And that's because we don't exercise our, our blood vessels that much. They're not under our control. But if you go into a, a hot environment, they, they expand, they vasodilate. Then when you go into the cold, they contract. That's like doing a bicep curl for your vascular <laughs> And then you're also, you're also shifting blood. So when you go into the, the heat, you're pushing all the blood out to the periphery. But if you're doing it in a hot bath or a sauna or even a hot shower, you're not making more waste products. I mean, you, you actually, your body will heat up during exercise as well. That's why you sweat. But when you're exercising, you're, you're making these metabolic waste products so the blood has to go through and clean them out. But if you're in a hot bath or a sauna, your veins are dilated, your heart is beating more, you're breathing more, you get this hypocapnia, you blow off carbon dioxide, it, it makes your, your blood a little bit more alkaline because of the, the hyperventilation that happens with the heat and your heart increases its cardiac output. But you're, you're flushing your muscles and your periphery with blood. Then if you go into the cold, you're contracting those blood vessels. So that blood now goes into your core and it goes through your kidneys and your liver. So it then detoxifies, it flushes out all, all, all those waste products. So the hot and cold are actually really complementary. And when you do it, it's good to do like two or three rounds. So you just wouldn't do a sauna and then a cold and then finish. You do, you know, often you do hot, cold, rest, you know, rinse, then repeat. And you do that two or three times. That would be a normal sort of traditional session in, a, in sauna bathing, for example. And I think it's really important also to realise that when you heat your body up in a sauna or a hot bath, that it's really important to spend as much time relaxing and letting your body come back into balance. And that way, then you're teaching your body how to dampen the immune response, how to dampen inflammation. And that, you know, that cytokine storm that happens with infection you're helping your body dampen that down. So going back into homeostasis and that rest time is just as important as the time you spend in, in extremes of temperature. But with the hot and the cold, they're both really powerful. And um, when Wim Hof was here a couple of years ago, I, I toured with him and gave the science lecture, you know, the lecture, the science behind the Wim Hof method. And I got to you know, travel with him. And, um, but then we actually had planned to go to Kilimanjaro with, with my two teenage boys at the time. So we spent me and my boys, we spent three months training. So every morning I'd have a, you know, 10 minute ice bath and, and, you know, do the breathing exercises. But, you know, going to an ice bath, it's a pretty intense thing. And, but it's amazing how quickly your body can adapt. And I've run conferences, I've run workshops where, you know, with Wim Hof and I've done it, you know, for different um, corporate groups and other groups where you pretty much everyone can tolerate an ice bath for two minutes. If, if you over, you know, control your breathing, and pretty much everyone can hold their breath for two minutes if they if they're coached how to do that and quite safely and, and easily, and people get get amazed. Wow, you know, they can't hold their breath for twenty seconds, but then after a little bit of coaching, they can do it for two minutes. But when when you're doing ice bathing, it's amazing how quickly your body adapts, and that's because our bodies are meant to adapt to cold. Our European ancestors, you know, as it became winter, each day became colder and their whole bodies would then adjust. So you build up your cold tolerance very, very quickly. All over the world, there are groups, you know, the icebreakers who swim every day in the ocean, you know, no matter how hot or cold it is. And they all, you know, they do that into their 80s and 90s and they say they don't get sick and, they, you know, they're really social and really fit. So embracing the cold is something really powerful. But Initially, it's not that pleasant. <laughs> and I was running, um, a couple of years ago, I was running a, a, a retreat up in Guingana. And all these people, I was saying that the benefits of hot and cold showers. And people were saying, oh, but I hate, I'm not a cold water person. I hate the cold. And, and, and I say, okay, if you don't like the cold, then just do hot. You know, go really hot. And then you don't mind the cold. But 
I actually created this, I mean, I love dancing, that I created this song and dance that help, can help people go through hot and cold. And I call it the cold water hokey pokey. And it's, and it's so simple. It, t- it takes about a minute in the morning and basically involves just having a normal hot shower and, you know, you, you soap up. And that's hydrotherapy in itself. It's not just about washing. You know, when you have a shower, you know, that, that interaction with water is just a fantastic thing. But at the end of your hot shower, what you do then is you turn the heat up. So you make it even a little bit uncomfortably hot. And I talk about this point where you're comfortably uncomfortable, just to the point where, you know, you're a little bit prickly, you feel a bit flushed, you know, you feel almost like you're at the point of sweating even with the hot water on you. And then the hardest part of the whole thing is the decision to do it. And then you turn off the hot water, but you're really hot, yeah, and you turn on the cold water, but you just wet your left foot. So your whole body's really hot, and then you just put your left foot in the cold water. That's okay. You can do that. And then you put your left leg, and then you put your right foot, and then your leg, and your left hand and arm, and your other hand and arm. And, and what that does, it, it vasoconstricts all the blood vessels in your arms and your limbs. So it pushes all that hot blood that was sort of flushed and hot into your core. So even though, you know, um, you've got this cold water, and in Melbourne winter, the water's pretty cold, but you're actually still feeling warm because you've pushed all this, you've just wet your limbs. You've pushed all this hot blood into your core. And then, the, that's sort of, and then you keep on breathing calmly and you smile to yourself because that's what it's all about. And then before you put your left, before you do the next verse, you take a big breath and as you're breathing out slowly, you put your left side in, then your right side in, then your front side in and you turn yourself around. <laughs> Continue breathing calmly and smile to yourself because that's what it's all about. And, and when you do that, normally if, when you put your body into cold water, especially when it, cold water hits your neck where the blood vessels are, mm. you have this, <gasps> this natural in-gasp and you, you, you actually... <gasps> start to hyperventilate and that actually reproduces the body chemistry and the breathing pattern of anxiety and trauma because you know it can be quite anxiety producing but if you overtake your breath if you control your breath and breathe out really slowly uh, as you're doing it it changes the whole experience it takes the shock out of it so you can actually do it quite comfortably and then you keep breathing calmly again and smile to yourself because that's what it's all about and then you put your whole head in and you move your whole head around and you stand still and just get a drenching slowly turn yourself around Continue breathing calmly, smile to yourself. That's what it's all about. And then you put the cold water on your groin, on your kidneys and on your armpits. And that's where the blood vessels are near the surface, so where you get exposed to heat. And you'll find after you do that, you'll be able to stand under the cold water and you feel, oh, this is all right. I'm in the cold. It's okay. And then at that point, you can just get out. And that takes less than a minute and it will transform your day. It transforms your physiology. And... It, it happens at a physical level, but also a psychological level because you come out feeling really alive and vibrant and tingling. But you feel like a badass and, and you've practiced doing something uncomfortable. So then the next time it comes to have that difficult conversation or to do that messy job you didn't want to do, you've practiced doing something you didn't want to do and knowing that you're okay with it. Mm-hmm. And, and that has a huge psychological advantage. It stops you procrastinating because, you know, you just, you practice just getting on, just do it. And you just make that decision and you do it. And that doesn't cost any money, doesn't take any time, you know, not much. I mean, in, in the summer months in Sydney and Brisbane and other places in the world, the water's not cold enough to really get the, the benefit from it. What they say to get the, you know, really the good benefit from a cold water experience, it has to be below about 14 or even 12 degrees. Mm-hmm. You get that really sharp vasoconstriction. But once, once you can do that and control your breath with that, it's a totally transformative experience. And it's something you can do every, every day and, and it's, it's easy. But, but no one's going to make money out of it. We're purchasing a health retreat up the back of um, Woolenbar at the moment 
and I've just ordered. Uh, I've been working with this guy over the last year or so that makes float tanks and he's created a at-home ice bath that actually looks really good. So I've ordered the first one and we're going to work together to try to promote this for people that want to do have, a, have an ice bath at home that's constantly going. With, uh, I'll, I'll share that later, but I've ordered one for the health retreat and also my friends at Clearlight, we've got their saunas going to be um, in there as well. So we're going to... Yeah, we, we used um, Clearlight saunas for our the research we did at the Queensland Academy of Sport with our clinical trial. Great, uh, great machines, great people too. Sebastian's uh, a, a wonderful person. And so first off, I want to invite you up there when we start doing uh, retreats. We're going to just do small sort of five or six people for a weekend, really immersive, really intimate, cooking, lifestyle, uh, just just beautiful things. So I would love to invite you up there one day, Mark, when you're allowed to. I, mean, I spend a lot of time in Byron Bay. I've got a lot of great friends up there. Perfect. And I, I would love to... F- First off, again, I just want to thank you for sharing all this, all of this information. But I just want to go back to your paper about uh, COVID or coronavirus or viruses in general, because I've had Dr. Thomas Cohen on the podcast before, and he was talking about that our body has a. It's so intelligent that when we do have a fever, it's it's actually our body's wanting to heal itself. It's it's wanting to purge these things out. So when you release this paper. What are the protocols for people to do? Is it basically what you've just been talking about now or is there a specialised protocol or anything for somebody that is concerned about a virus to, to put into action? Well, there's what I call common sense safety precautions. Mm-hmm. So anytime you're using, I mean, heat is a really powerful force. I mean, all life, and I talked about how the start of life was the hot, hot meeting cold. No, and the only reason why there's life on Earth is because there's liquid water and we're, we live in this Goldilocks zone where it's not too hot, not too cold, that liquid water can exist. So all life has to tolerate, you know, it lives in a temperature window. And, you know, heat can move a train, you know, steam engines. So it's a powerful force, so you have to respect it. So there's some really basic safety precautions. So one is stay hydrated. But keep that beautiful water going and use the best water you can because... You know, you don't want to be breathing, you know, chlorine and, and toxic fumes. You don't want to be drinking it when you're, when you're dehydrating yourself. So staying hydrated is really important. You know, avoid getting burnt. You know, if you, when it, hot water can burn you, you know, a sauna can burn you. So it's common sense, don't go too close to it and don't burn, don't burn yourself. And one of the tricks is you need to, it's, there's no prescription to how much heat or for how long and how, what, how, what level of humidity because it's based on your own personal tolerance. And your own personal tolerance will, will vary from day to day, will vary on your mood, will vary on your, how often, what you've done in the past and, and how much you've been exposed to. But you, get, you need to get to a point where what I call comfortably uncomfortable. And it's the point where you know that, okay, you get to this point where your body requires your mind to pay attention to it. It's a, the point of what I call forced mindfulness. So, you know, you're in a sauna, you're in a hot bath, but eventually you say, okay, I'm getting hot now. And your, your body takes your mind's attention and say, hey, maybe it's time to get out. Same with an ice bath. Your, your body will say eventually, okay, it, it's time to get out. So you want to get to that point where you're comfortably uncomfortable, not when you're uncomfortably uncomfortable because then you're, you, don't have to, you don't want to force things. So you need to be mindful. You also want to be in touch with your body. So, you know, you don't want to use drugs and alcohol that actually – block your sensation of how long you can be there. A lot of people have died in saunas and most of the deaths are associated with alcohol where people, they lose touch with their body or how dehydrated they are and they, they spend too long there. 
So, you know, they're the common sense precautions. You know, don't don't burn yourself, stay hydrated, be mindful of your or your limits and know your limits. Also spend as much time balancing yourself, resting afterwards as you have done in the hot or the cold. But other than that, the principles are to do different rounds. So you do, you know, hot, rest, cold, then back to hot. And do, do a couple of rounds. It's, it's really beneficial, not just to do one, depending on what you're doing. So, well, humidity is super important. And that's a whole other issue we can talk about with blocking corona because there are three levels of your immune system. And the, the first line of your immune defence is your mucous membranes in your skin. So for respiratory viruses, the first line of defence is the lining of your nose and mucous membranes. And they like a, a warm, moist environment. So naturally in winter when it's cold and dry air and you know, vitamin D is not as much and you're a bit cramped and the food's maybe not as fresh, but you, when you have cold, dry air, that mucus layer that normally you have a, a wet mucus layer and then on top of that there's like a sticky mucus layer. And that sticky mucus layer grabs pollen, it grabs particles and dust and bacteria and viruses and it traps them like flypaper. And then the, the microbiome inside your nose works with the epithelial cells to present new viruses to these antigen-presenting cells. So to say, hey, I haven't seen that before, and shows it to your body and your body's, oh, I haven't seen that before, better make an antibody to it. And you've got IgA antibodies, which line the mucous membranes. So that's the first layer of immune defence. And that's supported by a warm, moist environment. So just keeping your house warm in winter, keeping the humidity about 50%, plus or minus 10, so between 40 and 60%. And it's harder to keep cold air humid because uh, the warmer the air is, the more moisture it'll hold. But there are things that naturally you can do in wintertime where you'll, you'll make soups. You make lots of cups of tea and the steam will come off the soup and the steam will come off the, you know, the, the kettle. and You'll have firewood that you bring inside and that'll re- release water and you dry your clothes inside and that'll release water and you have some indoor plants and that, or a fish tank or a water feature that'll all contribute to the humidity of your house. Mind you, if your house gets too humid, then you, you can be subject to mould and that's a whole other discussion. So, so we live in this window between mould and viruses. When it's too cold, we get prone to viral infection. When it's too humid and moist, we get prone to mould. So we want to live in this sort of humidity window between, you know, between the two. And we're talking about protocols. Like a steam room, you can tolerate 48, 50 degrees because water will transmit heat 25 times more than air. So water's a great conductor for heat. So that means in a hot bath at 40 degrees, 42 or 43 degrees is, is as hot as most people can bear in a bath. You know, in a steam room, you can maybe 48, 50. In a dry sauna, you can get up to 120 degrees centigrade. So the... the Exposure to heat depends on the moisture that's around and also depends on you. So there's no one level of heat that I can prescribe for you. But I can say go, go into the heat until you, you, know, you start maybe feeling your head, you, you feel the, your heart pounding, that you feel that your attention's been taken towards your body and you start saying, oh, wow, I'm really hot. And then you get to the point, it's similar when you're doing yoga, you get to a point where you get to the edge of your stretch and if you know, if you go any further, you're going to hurt yourself. But if you just stay there and concentrate and breathe, you're going to be okay. But you have to just sort of stay there and breathe. What's well, the same sort of thing? You want to get to the point where you, if I just breathe and be there, I'm okay. But if I you know, go too long and just spend a few breaths at that point, and then you can go and cool down. Then once you've cooled down and that can be just 
going outside. It can be, you know, having a cool shower. It can be going into an ice bath or you know, doing the, the whole hot, cold, you know, really big contrast thing. And then you can go back into the heat. So, but having a, a protocol, just like, like the cold water hokey pokey in the shower where you do the hot water and, and the cold water, that takes a minute. And they've actually done research on that. They um, inspired by Wim Hof in the Netherlands and they did this randomised controlled trial. They recruited 3,000 people and they divided them into groups and they either had a, a hot shower alone every morning or they had a hot shower followed by a 30, 60 or 90 second cold shower. And this was in the winter in the Netherlands, and the cold shower was like below 12 degrees. So that's, that's cold. You get that real shock, you know, 12 degree shower. And they followed these people for a month. What they found is after a month, the people that had the cold shower after their hot shower had 29% less sick days at work hmm. than, the, than the hot shower group. And when they interviewed them, you know, more than two thirds said, oh, we didn't really like it, but we're going to keep on doing it because we feel so fantastic afterwards. And, you know, I don't know any other treatment that would say hey, 29% less sick days and this group had less colds and flus after having this cold shower after their hot shower it didn't matter if it was 30 60 or 90 seconds hmm. so it, it just mattered that they had gone into the cold because after 30 seconds you've overcome that initial <gasps> you know that that shock you've had to control your breath and once you've overcome your your breathing and you've relaxed into the cold you've got the benefit now there are other benefits of having more prolonged cold and and up ramping up your metabolism. But just that initial, you know, just a brief cold exposure actually, again, primes your whole body, primes your immune system, makes makes your mind and your body act on the one page. I call it, there's a point where your mitochondria meets your mind. Your mitochondria telling you, hey, you know, we're really cold, get out of here. We're really hot, do something. So anytime your body and your mind are on the same page, which is yoga, that's union. You know, the union of mind and body and breath. When you combine those three, that's really powerful for your health. And you can do it just through a, a hot shower, sauna, steam room, whatever, however you choose. I, I'm going to throw a curly one at you here, if you don't mind, and, and then we'll wrap it up. So at the moment, I've been sharing things on social media and, and it, it's been triggering for a lot of people and challenging for a lot of people. And the comments that I've received have been, very, very interesting, very fascinating. Where a lot of people are focusing their, their, their thoughts, their compassion, their hearts is on our vulnerable, the most vulnerable to a virus, which is, is the elderly, which seems to be the people that are in their 80s and 90s that are in nursing homes that probably do not have the, the ability to do what you're talking about. and. Is there a solution to our most vulnerable at the moment? Because people are, I mean, yesterday there was huge censorship when doctors came out and started talking about hydroxychloroquine and zinc and, and a few other things. And I, I know they're pharmaceuticals, but these doctors seem pretty, pretty of, of the belief that these, these drugs work. And I understand the, the, uh, why they work. So what is the solution for our most vulnerable that are at that later stages of life? This, this virus seems to uh, affect the people that maybe have underlying health conditions, such as diabetes. Yeah, comorbidities. Yeah, yeah. No, no, absolutely. Well, that, and it's a really great question. And that, unfortunately, we're not doing the sensible thing right now. I mean, the sensible thing is you protect the vulnerable people and you let the more robust people 
go out and try and get the disease. Because, and then what happens is the disease itself mutates and it always mutates to a less lethal form because if it, if it makes you really sick and you're, you're home in your bed, you're not spreading it. But it's, you, know, you want to be spreading the less lethal form. And if you're a child, if you've got a great immune system, you can get the infection, you won't get sick. And, and they're even saying now, you know, the vast, vast majority, you know, 98% of people you know, won't, be, won't get sick by this virus. But then they can go get sick and they build the herd immunity. That's you know, really important that you, know, you want people to go out and interact. And, and there's a virome that's there's like 10 times more viruses than bacteria in our bodies. And there's 10 times more bacteria than human cells in our body. And these viruses are like little emails that get sent between humans and between life forms. And um, when you go out into the forest and be forest bathing, you get exposed to viruses and, and bacteria just in the air and just, you know, the Japanese have done a whole lot of research on you know forest bathing doing that. So there are things we can do for the vulnerable people. One is good sunshine, good nutrition. They can do bathing. They, I mean, they can do a hot bath and a cold bath, and you know, not to the extreme, just to the. And that's why it's really important to, to do it to the individual tolerance. So you can. There are ways to help build up their their own tolerance. But then you protect the old, you know, the old and the frail and the elderly. You protect, and you let everyone else get on with their life. Okay. Last question, the curliest one of all. When they do bring in a vaccine, if they do, what are the repercussions of, the, of such a thing in your opinion? And if you don't want to answer it. I mean, it's, it's a really important question because that's now, you know, there are some countries that have already mandated it and made it law, but that doesn't even exist yet, the vaccine. And the issue about vaccines is I think it's a whole misguided approach to health because you, you're trying to t- target one virus and let alone all the safety issues, because vaccines are not double-blind tested. There's no, there's no placebo testing for vaccines. And the new RNA vaccine actually changes your DNA, so it actually changes your genetic expression. So that's, if we get it wrong, the repercussions are devastating. And there's no way they can do safety testing in a few months. You know, will these vaccines make people sterile? What's going to happen to the next generation? You know, what, if there's long-term effects, how will we ever know? If you're talking about vaccinating the world, this is, it, it seems crazy to me to even approach that. Yet, if you had clean, flowing water for everyone in the world, you wouldn't need vaccines at all. If they, they spent the same amount of money as they're spending on vaccines on clean water, there wouldn't be infectious diseases. Yet currently, we live in a world where one in, one in three people on Earth don't have access to clean water. So you've got about a billion people that don't have access to drinking water and about 2.4 billion, so about a third of the world, one in three people don't have access to clean water to bathe in. That's the biggest health issue we have. We want to have worldwide wellness. The best way to make health security for people is having everybody healthy. And the best way to do that is give them access to the basic requirements for health, which is bathe in beautiful water, prepare delicious food, you know, do the recipe for wellness. It's, it's simple. So vaccine, vaccine will never give us worldwide wellness. It's not going to give us global health. And in fact, the money you spend on vaccines, it's great for making money. It's not great for making healthy people. And if we get it wrong, it's potentially devastating. And and the the way it's structured now with the the sort of technocracy with the corporate governance and we've got corporations and institutions that are much stronger and more powerful than any national government. And the vaccine manufacturers are given um, exemption. So if, if you're injured by the vaccine, 
that's your fault. You know, you have to put up with the cost and the consequences for that. There's no, you can't sue the company for negligence. There's no incentive of vaccine companies to actually make them safe since 1986, you know, since the Act came in that says, okay, vaccine companies can't be sued. So, you know, to rush a vaccine and to have a vaccine that's not safety tested, it's not placebo control trial, there's you know, no active placebo, that if we get it wrong, it's, it's potentially devastating. And then to have it mandated is actually crazy. So I'm really concerned about that. And I think a lot of people are becoming very concerned about that. I know, you know, Robert F. Kennedy's done some great work. I met him about 25 years ago in New York when I was working with um, a Veda Corporation and involved with um, river keepers and, and water water safety work. Yeah, the, the, that I think it's a really misguided approach to global health. It's a potentially extremely dangerous approach when it's not properly tested. And you think, okay, if we get it wrong, and that's not, you know, there's plots to say, okay, they want to get it wrong and they want to depopulate people and they want to control people and they can... And the amount of toxicity we're all exposed to, you know, I've been talking... For many years, I've given a lecture called The Ten Toxic Truths, right? I talk about the ten non-controversial scientific basis for toxicity in our world. And it's cumulative. It's not just you have one toxic thing and then that's what you have to deal with. It's, it's the dose, it's the timing, it's the combination of, of toxic agents... And it's your genetics, it's your susceptibility. And it's not just chemical toxicity, it's environmental toxicity, it's electromagnetic toxicity, it's nuclear radiation, it's in our food, it's in our soil, it's in our air, it's in the products we buy. There's microplastics everywhere, there's nanoparticles everywhere. There's no organism on earth that's not toxic through the direct agency of industrial processes. So these toxicities combine and they, it's like, you know, they put poison in our water to make it healthy or they put, they put toxic chemicals in our vaccines to make them healthy and make them safe. And I don't think, you know, poisoning you, poisoning you, literally poisoning you is a way to become healthy. Just like with water, you know, if you don't use a filter, you are a filter. You know, you become the filter. And it just makes sense, yeah? Um, so m- making your, you know, putting toxic agents, and, and these have, you know, formaldehyde and, and metals and, and you look, you know, aborted fetal cells and all, all these really toxic agents that are supposed to elicit an immune response to then supposedly target our immunity for a respiratory viral infection where the immunity is like the stage three of your immune response. I talked about the first phase, which is in your, in your nose. Then the second phase is your innate immunity. And then the third phase is making antibodies or T-cell immunity. So the vaccine's actually trying to only boost up the third phase when you can try and boost it up at the first phase of your immune defence. So just building up the... And because and, no, the antibodies don't get into your nose, they're in your blood. So even if you get antibodies for a vaccine, it's not going to actually help you catching the virus. It may actually help you respond to the virus. But then we know that there's vaccine priming where you can have a vaccine for a virus and you get exposed to the wild virus and you get even sicker. So to avoid that... so I. I I'm really concerned, as I think a lot of people are, that this is a really misguided approach. It's a very lucrative approach for the vaccine manufacturers. It's a really safe approach because they can't get sued and they can just, you know, literally make money every year for, you know, forever for very little risk. But in terms of our the health of ourselves, of our children, of, of our whole communities, I think it's really, really dangerous. Mm, thank you for sharing. I agree. I won't be getting it, that's for sure. 
Yeah, what do I do when they come and knock and say, hey, you know, you can't participate in the world unless you have it? And I think we, we do, we need to deconstruct all these structures, that these governance structures that aren't serving us anymore. There's, there's, there's solutions popping up at the moment, which I'll share with people too. So there, there are so many solutions. Yeah, yeah, there are. Mark, I love you, brother. I am so glad that Therese put us together and I feel like we're going to have quite a few conversations. I think this is, this is just part one and your recipe for wellness. Uh, what a be- beautiful, beautiful Thing that you were doing for the world. Yeah, I've got, I can put some, I'll give you, I'll send you the link, you can put a show notes or whatever, people can link to the poems. Yeah. Awesome, mate. I, I can't wait to uh, spend some time with you in person. And uh, once again, thank you so much for being here. Yeah, when I can get out of Victoria, <laughs> maybe go meet up in Byron Bay, it'd be great. Or, <laughs> but, but yeah, thanks, Pete. Thanks for all you do. And um, it's been a pleasure. Uh, love you, mate. See you, brother. Yeah, bye. If you would like to become a qualified health coach, then the Institute for Integrative Nutrition, or IIN for short, can help you achieve your goals. I completed the health coaching course many years ago, which has been one of the catalysts for my own journey into what I now love to do, which is to help people achieve greater health through the sharing of information through my books, seminars, podcasts, TV shows, and films. I recommend IIN for anyone wishing to pursue a career in the health coaching and wellness space. IIN is a one-year course, so that if you're a full-time worker, busy parent, or wherever you are in your life, it is flexible enough so you'll be able to complete all the required curriculum. Please see the link included in the podcast show notes or my website to access the free sample class and first module of their program. This will give you a great taste of the format as well as the structure, and you can also utilize my special discount that I can offer you if you decide to sign up. Make sure you tell the admissions team that you're part of the Pete Evans Tuition Savings to claim your very substantial discount. Please visit integrativenutrition.com or email admissions at integrativenutrition.com. The information, views and opinions expressed in this podcast should not be treated as a substitute for nutritional, medical or other advice by a qualified professional. Guests in this podcast express their own opinions, experiences, and conclusions. Nothing in this podcast should be used to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any medical condition. Neither Pete Evans nor any sponsor endorse any views, opinions, or conclusions expressed or shared in this podcast.